सुखदम केवल ज्ञानमूर्ति दंडातीत गगन सदृश तत्मशादिलाक्षमचल साक्षिभूत भातीतुणरहित प्लेजर life and death and all pairs of opposites who is all pervading like the sky who is the one goal of our spiritual aspiration who is one without a second eternal immutable stainless and pure who is the constant witness of the changing phenomena of the universe may we through his grace see what is noble and uplifting may we through his grace hear what is pure and spiritual may we through his grace go beyond darkness and illusion and realize truth in this life peace 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 be unto us and to all living beings i shall read to you a few lines from the gospel of sri ramakrishna the master says what is the discipline of divine love or bhakti it is to keep the mind on god by chanting his name and glories for the kali yuga the present age the path of devotion is easiest this is indeed the path for this age the path of rituals is very difficult first of all as i have said where will one find the time for it nowadays where is the time for a man to perform the rituals as enjoined in the scriptures man's life is short in this age further it is extremely difficult to perform the ritualistic worship in a spirit of detachment without craving the result one cannot work in such a spirit without first having realized god to follow gyan yoga the path of knowledge is also very difficult first a man's life depends entirely on food second he has a short span of life third he can by no means get rid of body consciousness the follower of knowledge says i am brahman i am not the body i am beyond hunger and thirst disease and grief birth and death pleasure and pain how can you be a follower of the path of knowledge 
if you are conscious of disease, grief, pain, pleasure, and the like. Therefore, Bhakti Yoga, the path of divine love, is prescribed for this age. By following this path, one comes to God more easily than by following the others. One can undoubtedly reach God by following the path of knowledge and the path of rituals, but they are very difficult paths. Bhakti Yoga, the path of divine love, is the religion for this age. But that does not mean the lover of God will reach one goal and the philosopher and the ritualist another. It means that if a person seeks the knowledge of Brahman, he can attain it by following the path of divine love. God who loves his devotees can give him the knowledge of Brahman if he so desires. Now, a lover of God prays to the Divine Mother, O oh Mother, I am very much afraid of selfish actions. Such actions have desires behind them, and if I perform them, I shall have to reap the fruit. But it is very difficult to work in a detached spirit. I shall certainly forget thee, O oh Mother, if I involve myself in selfish actions. Therefore, I have no use for them. May my actions, O Divine Mother, be fewer every day till I attain Thee. May I perform without attachment to the results only what action is absolutely necessary for me. May I have great love for Thee as I go on with my few duties. May I not entangle myself in new work so long as I do not realize Thee, but I shall perform it if I receive Thy command, otherwise not. Now this morning I shall discuss on concentration through divine love. Direct knowledge of God is possible through concentration and meditation, not through the study of the scriptures, not through rituals, not through philanthropy, but through meditation and concentration. God is no doubt everywhere, but the mystics tell us of all religions, the special manifestation of God is in man. Christ said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. A Hindu mystic said, always dwell within thyself. Never go to anybody else's door. Whatever you seek, you will find in your heart, which is the courtyard of the Lord. Now, if God alone is real, and if God dwells in our heart, why do we not see Him? Well, our mind is directed to the other world, outside world, external world, 
which includes even the heaven. If one is always looking upward to heaven to see God, one certainly cannot see him in the heart. Well, our mind is directed to the outer world. Why? The Upanishad says that when God created man, he made his sense organs inclined to the external world. Therefore, he sees the external world, material world, and he does not see the innermost self. Only some calm and discriminating persons saw the inmost self, God within, by covering their eyes, by turning their attention to the inner world. Now meditation is a deep discipline to incline our mind towards our inmost self or God who dwells in us. In meditation, one closes the eyes. Well, it is a symbolic thing. Closing the eyes means, really, one closes all the sense organs from the outside world. They don't allow the ears to hear outside sound, and they don't allow the skin to feel the touch of the outside world, so on and so forth. When people who are expert in meditation or who have been able to look within in meditation, even when they open their eyes and look at the outside world or move about in the outside world, you will see that their eyes appear as half shut and half closed as you see in the photograph of Sri Ramakrishna, half shut, closed, which means with half the attention. He is always looking within through eyes half closed. And with other half open, he's looking at the outside world. Sri Ramakrishna used to give the example of the mother bird hatching the eggs in the nest, you will see the mother bird is looking around with a kind of vacant look. But the part of the eye is fixed on the eggs she is hatching. The concentration is the chief discipline for yogis, whether he follows the path of discrimination or they follows the path of psychic control or follows the path of bhakti or divine love. Now, path of knowledge, as I read from the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, path of discrimination is very difficult for modern man. You have to discriminate between what is real and unreal with a sharp intellect. And then with tremendous willpower, you have to give up the unreal and follow the real. Furthermore, 
we are asked to cultivate the control of the body, control of the senses, control of the mind. Now this is extremely difficult, especially for a modern man who in his whole life, as Sri Ramakrishna said, is, well, his whole life is dependent upon food. And he spends most of his time in procuring food for him or for his family. Then the Raja Yoga, which means the control of the mind. That also is very difficult for a modern man. The control of the mind means that we must not create waves in our mind. And we must, the surface of the mind, calm and serene. Now, in modern times, it is very difficult because we must be active in the outside world. Well, we cannot earn our livelihood. We cannot win in struggle for existence unless we move around in the outside world. And the modern time is such that the world outside the world is full of suggestions. And those suggestions disturb our mind. Now, the path of divine love is comparatively easy. We are told, if we follow this path, that we should not destroy any emotion or feeling. If you follow the path of knowledge, you have to completely suppress all emotions and feelings towards the external world. But if you follow the path of divine love, you are not to destroy or suppress any emotion. We are asked to turn that direction, to give them a new direction, our emotions and feelings. For instance, if we must have desire, we can't get rid of desire, let us cultivate the desire for the realization of God. Now, if you follow the path of knowledge, you are asked to give up all desires. Now, if you have passion, well, let us long for, or let us yearn for God. In the path of knowledge, you must not have any passion. Well, we have anger. Let us be angry with ourselves that we have not made enough spiritual progress. If we have greed, let us not uproot greed. Let us be greedy for the vision of God. Let us have ego. That ego we should feel as the servant ego, the ego of a lover. Therefore, all our passions and desires can be directed to God. Therefore, path of bhakti is easier. Now, what is God? The general definition of God, as you all know, the God is our creator, our preserver, and our savior. He is eternal, he is pure, he is ever free. He is almighty, all-knowing, and all-merciful. He is the teacher of the teachers. God has been defined in the scriptures of bhakti or divine love as the Lord whose nature is inexpressible love. His love solidified. Well, 
his call in Sanskrit language Hori. Hori means he who attracts all to him, sinner or virtuous, righteous or unrighteous, everybody is attracted by him as magnet attracts the pieces of iron. But if the iron is covered with mud, the attraction is there all the same. The iron filings do not feel the force of attraction. He is further defined as endowed with infinite number, unlimited number of blessed qualities. There is not in him one trace of anger or hatred. Furthermore, though God is pure spirit, all-pervading, eternal, yet one can worship him as a person. He always draws the devotees to him. Even if the worst sinner, most wicked person, think of God with unswerving devotion, unswerving love, the moment he turns his face towards God and feels towards him that unswerving love, that very moment, Bhagavad Gita says, he has become a saint because now he has made the right resolve. Well, now, what is the proof that such God exists? Well, the same question I asked to Holy Mother Ramakrishna's wife. What is the proof of God's existence? How does one reason about it? And Holy Mother smiled and said, well, you use reason for an object which you do not know. See, you try to prove it by your reason. But if I see something always here in front of me or within me, must I use reason? So I believe at certain stage of evolution, you know that there is that cosmic power, the power behind the universe, the power that controls every moment of our life, that power exists. And he is also ready, eager to reveal himself to us if we want him, if we hanker after his vision. Now, he is not seen on account of the ignorance, veil of ignorance, with which we have covered God, our inner self. So, when you know him, we obtain from him peace, freedom, and bliss. And according to Hinduism, the purpose of life is to cultivate God consciousness. Bhagavad Gita says, Anittam Asukam Lokam Imam Prakpa Bhajasama Having been born in this world, which is unreal, which is the abode of misery, worship me alone. Now, how to realize him? As I said before, not through the study of scriptures, not through self-torture or mortification of flesh, not through philanthropy, not through rituals. Why not? Because when we practice austerities, 
or when we study scriptures, or when we torture ourselves, or when we give in charity, there's always a trace, an element of ego present. I am giving in charity, I am practicing fasting, I am meditating, but as long as the slightest trace of ego is present, I is present, you simply cannot realize God. As Sri Ramakrishna used to say, when you try to pass thread through your needle, if the teeniest fiber sticks out, the thread will not pass through the eye of the needle. So, God is realized through His grace. Now, how does one get God's grace, obtain God's grace? When we have tried everything, as one holy man used to tell us, who practiced great austerities, went without food, went without sleep, so on and so forth. When you have tried everything, austerity, fasting, going without sleep, so on and so forth, bhav, silence, we have tried everything. And then we try to find out whether we have realized God. No, God is still far away. Then what happens? Then we surrender ourselves completely at God's feet. We seek His mercy, and then His grace descends upon us. So, the Bhagavad Gita says, through love alone, one can penetrate into the deepest mysteries of the Godhead. Now, what is this love? What is love which enables us to receive God's grace. Love means, according to scriptures on devotion, a genuine search after the Lord through this feeling, love. What is the test that you have really, you are cultivating divine love? What is the test? Well, when acquires love of God, one loves all and hates none. Now, this is the difference between the divine love and human affection. The affection man shows to his wife, or wife shows to the husband, or parents show to the children. It's called worldly affection. And the difference between worldly affection and divine love is that when one acquires divine love, one loves all. One hates none. There is no jealousy in divine love. In human affection, there is always an element of jealousy, whether expressed or hidden. Furthermore, this divine love cannot be reduced to any earthly benefit. Well, even in the ideal love between husband and wife, there is an element of some kind of material expectation. We all know it. Now, Bhakti mystics say, as long as worldly desires are cherished, one does not experience the supreme love. 
one of the greatest devotees of God in Hindu tradition was called Prahlada. And he defined divine love in this way. May that deathless, intense love which the ignorant people have for the fleeting objects of the senses, may that intense love not slip away from my mind as I keep meditating on thee. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, if we can combine the three forces of attraction, the attraction which the mother feels for her only child, the chaste wife feels for her husband, and the miser feels for his money. If we can combine these three attractions and direct them towards God, then we can realize Him. Now, in the preparatory stage, the love of God often degenerates into hideous fanaticism, inferior devotees without discrimination denounces all other manifestations of God. It is a sort of dog-like instinct. A dog is very jealous of his master. But I think a dog sometimes shows better judgment than a fanatic or a bigot, because a dog will recognize his master no matter in whatever form the master appears before him. If he can put on any kind of clothes or he can put on any kind of disguise, but the dog will recognize him. But a fanatic will accept only one aspect of God. If the same God appears, taking other forms, the devotee does not accept. And fanatic does not accept. Bigot does not accept. A fanatic often judges the depth of his own devotion to God by the amount of hatred he shows towards other ideals. He forgets that love and hate cannot coexist. He cannot love his God or his ideal by showing hatred to other ideals. You see, a genuine Christian cannot harden his heart against Buddha or Krishna without hardening his heart against Jesus. Because Jesus, Buddha, and Krishna, they are all manifestations of the same reality. Well, we have a very beautiful story. In India, there was a man whose chosen ideal was Shiva, devoted to Shiva, and he hated Vishnu. That's another manifestation of the Godhead. He hated Vishnu. But he was a very sincere devotee of Shiva. And he used to spend long hours every day in the worship of Shiva. Well, Shiva wanted to correct him. So one day, as he was worshipping Shiva with incense or with ringing the bell, well, suddenly Shiva, just to open his eyes, appeared before him, half Shiva and half Vishnu. Half Shiva and half Vishnu just to prove to him that Shiva and Vishnu are really not two different deities. So he was waving the incense, and he saw 
the smell of the incense, you see, was uh, being enjoyed by both Shiva and Vishnu, and he did not like it, that Vishnu should enjoy his, you know, the fragrance of his incense. So he left his seat and he pressed the nostril of the Vishnu so that no smell can go through it. Well, then he saw, then he offered food and he saw that the Shiva, one half of the image, eating the food offering and also Vishnu also eating the food offering and he could not stand that. So he pressed half of the, you see, the mouth, half. Well, so, so he could not even bear the word Vishnu. So the rumor, you see, was spread in the village that that man hated Vishnu. So people, just to tease him, whenever he would go to the town, they would shout the name of Vishnu. And he tried to run away, but he could not keep himself away always from town. So what he did, he hung two bells from his ear. So when they shouted the name of Vishnu, he would shake his head. So the, the sound of the bell would drown, what is called the, uh, the name of sound of Vishnu. So he's called Bellyard in Hindu tradition. And every year, we Hindus, in the autumn time, burn an effigy of this Bellyard, or monster or demon, you may call him, just uh, to get rid of fanaticism. Now, what are the disciplines? by which one can cultivate divine love. Performance of daily obligatory duties. We frequently complain, oh, we have no time for meditation, for prayer, or for study, because of the conflict of duties. Well, one can remember the Lord even while performing the duties of life. You can repeat, Lord's name all the time, even when you are doing your duties in the office or in the laboratory, even while you're cooking, you can always inwardly repeat Lord's name. Just by practice, it can be done. For instance, a lady, she listens to the radio, she watches the television, gossips with her friends, and at the same time, she's knitting a sweater. So one can do it. Now, a part of mind can be trained to think of God, and the other part, mind, can be used to perform our duties. You see, sometimes, we know it, you see. We are working in the garden, or working in the kitchen, or working in the office. At the same time, a part of our mind is thinking of a friend or a dear relative, maybe hundreds of miles away, hundreds of miles away. So it can be done. How do you do it? Well, you find it in all the books, I suppose. Begin your day with an hours of meditation and prayer. And then in the evening before you retire, spend some time again in meditation and prayer. And in between, while doing your duties, secular duties, mundane duties, feel the presence of God. Repeat His name inwardly. 
as you feel the pain of toothache, even when you are talking to people or eating your food, so on and so forth. Now, there's another story I'll tell you that in Hindu tradition, one of the greatest devotees of the Lord is Narada. He all the time, he sings the name of God, he plays on his guitar, the glories of God. So he is considered one of the greatest devotees of God because he never forgets God. Well, one day he became a little vain and he thought he was the greatest devotee of God. So he came to the Lord and said to the Lord, Lord, who is your greatest devotee? Just he's fishing for, you know, what you call compliment. Of course, Lord would say, you are my greatest devotee. Well, the Lord did not say that. Lord said, now go to the earth. Now this conversation took place in heaven. Go to the earth. And he gave the name of a man, said, you go and see him. And he is the greatest devotee. So Narada was jealous inwardly, and he was very curious that what sort of life that man was leading on earth. He came down and he saw he was just a farmer, ordinary farmer. From morning till evening, he's busy in his field. So he asked the farmer, now I see you're always busy in the field. When do you think of the Lord? He said, only when I get up from bed, I repeat his name. And when I go to bed, I repeat his name two times. So this Narada was, he was felt very, very, you know, surprised that he should be called the devotees of God, that uh, repeating Lord, remembering Lord only twice, morning and evening. And he himself was singing of God all the time. He came to heaven. The Lord said, how did you find that my devotee? He said, sir, I am surprised. That man said that he remembers only twice, only twice. He's busy with his farming. How can you say that he's your greatest devotee? And the Lord smiled and said, all right, take this cup, a big cup, fill to the brim with oil, fill to the brim, and take it around the court once. But see, you don't spill one drop of that oil. So very cautiously, he carried the cup. All the time, his mind was fixed on the oil, don't you know, that does, should not spill. And he went around the court once without spilling the oil. Lord said, wonderful, fine. But tell me, when you walked around the court with this oil in your hand, how often did you think of me? He said, not once, not once, because I had to watch the oil. Now he said, now see that farmer, he is busy with his farm and so on and so forth, other duties. Still, he thinks of me twice. He thinks of me twice. So you see that even in the midst of duties, one can always think of the Lord. Then one must have faith in oneself. Bhagavad Gita says, lift up yourself with the help of yourself. Never depress yourself because you are your friend and you are your enemy.
if you have controlled your senses and the mind, then you have created a great friend in yourself. But if your mind and senses are without control, then you are your greatest enemy. Well, what is the sign of self-control? It is not running away from the world. It is not giving up your duties, but remaining unperturbed in success and failure, in pleasure and pain, in honor and dishonor, regarding yourself as God's instrument. In other words, we should perform our duties and surrender the fruit to God, surrender the action to God. By giving up duties, you cannot escape the bondage of duties. It's true that if one is engaged in duties constantly, one creates a kind of a shackle. But Holy Mother used to say, this bondage created by duty can be destroyed only through the performance of duty, not by giving up your duty. So Bhagavad Gita says, we must have equal regard for friend and enemy. How can we have regard for our enemy? Well, we read from the scriptures that God dwells in all. I suppose, of course, this tradition is passing away. Now we must hate our enemy. But this was not always so. We read, for instance, in history, during the crusade, when the Christians and the Sultan of Turkey were fighting uh, about the Holy uh, Land, the Sultan showed wonderful chivalry, wonderful respect for his Christian opponent. When Richard the Lionhearted was taken prisoner, he was very sick, and Sultan sent his own physician to treat him. Why? In your own history, in your own country. I think when the civil war was over and General Lee surrendered himself to General Grant, what respect General Grant showed to General Lee, the nobility of man. That's the nobility of heart, that he treated his enemy with great respect. Now, then we need, uh, when it comes to the practice of love, we need a chosen ideal. Now, God, no doubt, is everywhere, eternal, but our finite mind cannot grasp the infinite spirit. Therefore, for the welfare of the devotees, this infinite spirit assumes a form. There are many manifestations of the infinite spirit. Father in heaven, Allah, Jehovah, all these are manifestations of the infinite spirit. So also the incarnations of God like Krishna or Buddha or Christ or Ramakrishna, they are also manifestations of that infinite spirit. You have to accept one of those manifestations for the practice of meditation, who appeals to your mind most, who awakens, who quickens your spiritual consciousness.
At the same time, you have to regard all other manifestations with respect. Then we are to use the name or word symbol of God taught by our teacher. That means we have to repeat what they call mantra, the holy word. Now, name of God is holy. If we repeat God's name, gradually we are led to God. Sri Ramakrishna used to give this example. Suppose there is a chain. One end of the chain is on the bank of the river and the other end is in the bottom of the river. And the chain has many links. Now, if you want to go to reach the bottom, you have to hold to the chain and go down link by link. And finally, you reach the bottom of the river. This name of God is like a link. Now, some practical instruction about meditation, I'll discuss. Before you sit for meditation, we should prepare the mood. You just can't sit for meditation and think of God. You can't. The mind is too distracted. So a proper mood must be created. Now, I'm giving you the Hindu tradition. You can follow as much as you like. It is good to have a special garment for meditation. You see, the power of vibration, we all know. Now, with this business suit, you go everywhere in town, and with that suit, you cannot simply meditate. It will not help you in concentrating mind. So one should have a special garment, simple garment, and at the time of meditation, he should use the garment, and after the meditation, you fold it up and put in the drawer. And then, a special room is very helpful whenever convenient. You can say, well, where should we get a special room in New York City? Well, I know it is difficult, but you can always use, I believe, chapel of a church, no matter uh, what kind of church it is, at the time when there is no worship going on, you can slip into it and practice your own concentration. A church is a holy place. People come there with love of God. It is very helpful. And then we must have a proper seat. Of course, most of you sit on a chair. Well, I would suggest have a special chair which you use only for meditation. Because all sorts of people come there, they sit on your chair, and they leave their vibration. And vibration is a very powerful thing. It disturbs. But if you can't have a chair, you can use a little prayer rug, maybe worth a dollar, and spread it when you meditate on the chair. And after your meditation, you put it back. A few flowers, maybe a little incense stick, maybe a few pictures, which stimulate your spiritual consciousness. But by no means, which people do I know, use your kitchen or the cellar or the subway train for your meditation. I mean, it is not simply right. Then, when you sit for meditation, whether you sit on the floor or sit on a chair, you hold your body straight. 
body, neck and head in the same straight line. And send thoughts of love, peace and goodwill in all directions. It will help to quiet your mind. Now, begin meditation following the teacher's instruction. Now, the general rule is, think of your chosen ideal, whoever he may be, and meditate on him. Visualize his image in your heart and repeat his name or the mantra, holy word you get from your teacher, inaudibly. Well, uh, I know for the beginner it is almost impossible to visualize the whole image of your chosen ideal. Try even to visualize the whole figure of your father or your mother. You will not be able to do it so easily. Well, you may visualize the head or the hand or the feet or a particular part of the body and even that quickly disappears. It's a very fleeting glimpse. Well, if you continue in the practice, gradually you will be able to visualize the whole image. And even when you succeed in visualizing the whole image, that also will disappear from time to time. Now in deeper meditation, when the meditation is deep, the image remains stationary for a long period until the mind again becomes restless. Then in the next stage, you see the image as you visualize when the meditation becomes deep. You see the image moving, smiling, and talking to you. Now, of course, the whole secret is love for God. If you, at the time of meditation you feel that intense love for God, you will see the image, that divine image is talking to you, smiling. It, it happens in our daily life. Suppose you are intently thinking of a son or of your husband or of your wife far, far away and you can see that your son or your husband is talking to you, smiling at you. You see it's living, it is living. Now, then you see, that means you see a chosen ideal alive, not just in picture or image, then you will see next stage that your chosen ideal has assumed different forms, all associated with him. Suppose you are thinking of Christ, a particular image of Christ, and in deep meditation you will see other forms other aspects of Christ's life, such as his Last Supper, or his crucifixion, or his teaching the disciples, or walking on the water, you will see all those things, different aspects of your, of the life or activities of your chosen ideal will appear before you. Then you will see that those visions are as real as the objects you see in your waking state. At first, 
you take the inner world as real. And then the vision becomes so strong that for the time being you completely forget the outer world. Well, you have been thinking of the inner world as real, but still there is a kind of oh, shadow-like perception of the outer world. Then that also disappears. Then gradually you don't see the external world. There remains only the inner world. Now, as we feel pain and pleasure or other emotions and feelings, when we are conscious of the external world, we have the same feeling in our meditation. You are thinking of your chosen ideal. He's absolutely alive, vivid. And then, well, I suppose, just to tease you, he will play a game of hide and seek. He will appear before you, you will be very happy, then he will disappear, then you will be very sad. All these things we'll experience. Now, the devotee still is dwelling in the inner world even while he's feeling pleasure or pain. Finally, the outer world and various emotions associated with it completely vanish. Outer world simply does not exist. And devotee becomes completely absorbed in God. And this is called Samadhi. This intense love of God, when you see Him alive, you talk to Him, you are guided by Him, as Ramakrishna was always guided by Kali, Divine Mother, always. Now, now this intense love of God is liberation, is freedom. Well, liberation from what? Liberation from ignorance, freedom from the bondage of the world, now, again, a follower of the discipline of knowledge, discrimination, he wants to merge himself completely in that universal spirit. He does not want to preserve a trace of his individuality. But a devotee of God, a lover of God, likes to preserve a little bit of individuality, a little bit of ego. Why? to taste the love of God, to enjoy the company of his devotees. As one great Hindu mystic said, I love to eat sugar, I love to taste sugar, but I do not like to be sugar. So a lover of God, he does not like to be God. He likes to enjoy God, don't you see? Now, so you see, after death, he does not merge in pure spirit, like the Gyani, follower of the path of knowledge, he goes to a, another plane of existence where he feels the nearness, proximity of his chosen ideal. They're always near each other. Or they live on the same plane together. He always feels his presence. Or he acquires godlike qualities. Now, how does one know the progress in meditation? Not by looking at your watch. Well, I meditated yesterday for 10 minutes, not today 15 minutes, so I'm making progress. Not that way. First of all, you will feel 
a boundless joy. And that joy you will experience, not as a result of contact of the sense organs with material objects. That joy comes from within, from communion with the Lord. And then one is not disturbed by physical or mental affliction. Well, as Bhagavad Gita gives the example, he becomes like the depth of the ocean, the calm depth of the ocean. There are waves on the surface of the ocean, but those waves cannot touch the depth of the ocean, that immutable depth of the ocean. So devotee of God, as he made progress in meditation, he knows that he is less and less disturbed by physical and mental affliction. Not that he does not experience physical or mental affliction, but he is not disturbed. And he experiences sort of inner tranquility, step by step, not all one day, step by step, he knows he's becoming more and more tranquil and his passions are gradually controlled. The steadfast lover of God, he sees himself in all beings, the same God dwells in all, he sees himself in all beings and all beings in himself. He sees all in God and God in all. Thus, he cultivates tremendous respect for all created beings, all beings in their essence are nothing but the Divine Spirit. He sees himself in all and all in himself and thus he regards the pleasure and pain of others as he regards them in himself. If somebody is injured or hurt, he feels he's injured and hurt. And if somebody is happy, he feels he's happy. So thus you see from his heart infinite compassion, infinite love flows in his presence. And that is I think one of the surest signs of the progress of meditation. If you have made real progress in meditation, if you have really cultivated God-consciousness, that in our presence all rudeness, all fiction, all enmity will cease. I suppose such love for man, based on the love for God, such love alone can redeem the modern world, from strife and confusion, this love alone, and bind the wounds of bleeding humanity. Now let's conclude with a little prayer. Yam shaiva samupasate shivaiti brahmaiti vedantina bodha buddhaiti pravanapatava Karteti Nayaika 
अर्हति तथ जैन शासन रता कर्मेती मीमांसका सोवै विदधातु वंचित फलम तुलिकनाथो हरि May he whom the Christians worship as Father in heaven, whom the Jews worship as Jehovah the Great, whom the Muslims worship as Allah the Powerful, whom the Hindus worship as Shiva, Kali and Vishnu, whom the Vedantins contemplate as Brahman or pure spirit, may he who is our father and mother our friend and companion, our treasure and wisdom, who is our innermost self. May he lead us from unreal to real, from darkness to light, from death, disease and suffering to immortality. May he manifest himself in us through and through, and may he protect us always with his compassionate face. Peace. Peace, peace be unto us and to all living beings.